Harry Darling tried to wind the clock back as he stared at the photographs laid out on the desk in front of him. Back to when he had a rank, men under his command, a sidearm and a burning sense of duty. Not to mention a notion of right and wrong, black and white. Before gray bled into the picture, blurring the line between the two. That was what he was dealing with now. The days when the gray came into his life. He had spread the eighteen six-by-eight black and whites before him as best he could, crowded and overlapping, some threatening to fall from the desktop onto the floor. They offered varying degrees of clarity, here pin-sharp, showing every pore in the face, every whisker missed by the morning shave, there displaying the fuzzy, snatched furtiveness of old pornography. He stared hard, waiting for the heady rush of unwelcome memory. But time would not move. Stubbornly, his reality stayed put, stranding him in the front room of his rambling home in a suburb of North London, with the rumble of cars doing the evening rat-run rather than the squeak of armored vehicles, the smashing of glass from the recycling collectors, not from the systematic looting of property. The footsteps above him, the headlong, almost-falling-over run of a one-year-old, and the more confident steps of his older sister, not the scrabble of panicked figures, trying to escape wicked, arbitrary death. Bath time soon, the clomping reminded him. He should go up. Anything? The voice on the other end of the phone jerked him back to the reason he was trying to make this temporal transference. Give me a minute. Darling redoubled his efforts, squinting now at each visage in turn, trying to get just a flash of an image of the man in the picture in a different context. A machine pistol at his waist, that carnivorous look in his eyes, the strange misshaped nose, the smell of fear and death and atrocity steaming off his body. Framed in the lenses of high-powered binoculars, the freshly painted skull and crossbones on the wall behind him glistening red and obscene. Still nothing came. It had been too long. Now he wore pinstriped suits and had to force himself to go to the gym once a week to keep a cap on his weight, creeping up because of corporate dinners and informal interviews. Once he had had thirty men under his command, now he had three hundred. But being a personnel director in the city was a tad different from army life. He was trying to make the jump to an alien world he no longer had access to. Roy, look, I'm sorry, but. It's important, Harry. He heard a squeal of joy from up above and wanted to get off the phone. Roy Kroc was also from that other world, one that didn't recognize or care for his kids. The kids he swore he would never have after he had seen the pain and the agony they could bring. It had taken him five years to realize that he was unlikely to experience in Highgate the kind of suffering he and Kroc had once seen. Now he was sorry he had waited so long, especially when he saw fathers twenty years younger, running around the park, while he worried about his knee giving out whenever he kicked a ball to his son. I know, Roy, I know. You don't sound convinced. Who are you these days, Roy? Who am I? What are you? Same old, same old, State Department. So why are you in New York? This is where the most visa fraud is. Immigration and Naturalization Department, 
one of the busiest in the country. So you're on visa fraud now. A touch of evasiveness. Um, it's a means to an end. The tone suggested Harry shouldn't be asking these questions down an unsecured line. Darling knew Roy Kroc would be working for some strange-sounding little unit within the State Department, one that was a shape and name-shifter, coming up with new goals and acronyms every six months. It kept the prying eyes on their toes. One thing about the Freedom of Information Act, he remembered Kroc saying, is you gotta know what questions to ask and who to address it to, so we keep changing the address.